We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into a text today. It'll take us a moment to get to this text. I want to give us some background around it, but we'll get there. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are very kind to us today. I mean, every week you're kind to bring us back here, to give us another week to worship you and to celebrate you and to cling to you and to confess our sins to you and to be, receive forgiveness time and time again from you. Every week you're so kind to bring us together to, to look each other in the eyes and to ask each other how we're doing and to pray for each other and to hear your word taught, to receive it, to be able to submit ourselves to it and to be able to be encouraged by it. Father, every week you are kind to do so. And this week, um, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, it's, it just feels even sweeter. Uh, just the, the opportunity we have to celebrate with the church, universal and historical, for years and years and years, centuries, the church has celebrated this, your resurrection. And so we thank you for the opportunity to do that today. We need to hear from you today, and so would you speak to us, Spirit, preach a better sermon than I have prepared to our hearts. And we pray for our brothers and sisters who we have sent out from our church. We've got um, friends who, who were a part of us that we've sent all over the United States and that we've sent around the globe and into um, dark places, other nations. And Father, I pray that you would be with them today. May their celebration of the resurrection be rich and, and, and um, joyful for them today where they're at. Would you bless their ministry as they seek to make known the name of Jesus in those places? We pray these things in your name. Amen. On one hand, Resurrection Sunday at Emmaus isn't necessarily all that different than every other Sunday. Right? I mean, we, we do the same thing. We, we gather, we sing songs, we sing songs about the resurrected Jesus, we hear sermons about the resurrected Jesus, we have confessions about the resurrected Jesus, we pray prayers about the resurrected Jesus, it's, we take communion of the resurrected Jesus. We, we do this every week at Emmaus. And in one sense, it's not all that different. We simply, more of us wear pastels than on other weeks, right? And so it's kind of a difference. But, but at the same time, today's a really special day. Right? As birthdays and anniversaries and celebrations of holidays and things are, are special, today special because the church universal is doing this very thing today of celebrating specifically the resurrection of Christ, which we happen to believe matters a lot. Right? We happen to believe that the resurrection of Christ actually changes everything for us. If he's not resurrected, then we are to be pitied the most. But if he is resurrected, huh, then, then we have a resurrection that's coming for us as well and that we have experienced through faith in him already from, uh, in our resurrection from the dead. That is something to be celebrated more than anyone else has to celebrate. Today, what we want to do is we want to look at this resurrection story in the Gospel of Luke. The reason we're looking at the Gospel of Luke is because we've been journeying as a church on Sundays through the book of Acts. Uh, we've taken a break today from the book of Acts, um, but the book of Acts was written by um, the doctor and historian named Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And throughout the book of Acts, Luke highlights over and over and over again the resurrection of Christ through the preaching of Peter and John and Philip and Stephen and the other apostles. It seems to be the primary thing they focus on in their sermons, Christ has raised from the dead. And where Luke gives such emphasis to that in the book of Acts, we thought, let's go back to his gospel and let's read his account of the resurrection of Christ. 
Now, before we get into Luke chapter 24, I want to give us the context as we come up. It's like if you're sitting down with a friend or a family to watch an episode of a TV show and you've never seen any of the episodes before that episode, uh, your friend has to give you the, okay, let me tell you what's going on here, right? Let me, let me bring you up to speed so you understand what's happening in this moment. And so allow me to bring us up to speed for a moment. And, and to do that, I want to give us three scenes of, of, of maybe of this picture, three scenes of, of the play that's unfolding for us in history. Scene one is going to be the problem. Um, scene two is going to be the promise. And scene three is going to be the provision. The problem, the promise, and the provision. The problem is this. There is a God. Now, that's not specifically the problem. But the problem is there is a God and we believe that this God has set order in motion for specific things to operate in specific ways, namely and specifically for us to be worshipers of him. The problem, though, is that Romans 1 tells us that all of us actually deeply down in our souls believe this. We actually cannot deny that there is a God. No man who has ever lived can actually deny there's a God. We look at creation, Romans 1 tells us, and there's no way to get out of it. We realize there's something bigger than us. There's something grander than us. There's something that's put everything in, in order and motion. We look at the solar system. We go, that's not by accident. We look at the breadth of the sea, and we go, that's created by someone larger than me. We all know there is a God, and we find ourselves guilty because what Romans 1 tells us we do is we suppress that truth. Right? That we suppress the truth that there is a God and that that God is not us. And we suppress that truth, and we elevate ourselves to be gods in our own life. And so rather than submitting ourselves to the God who created all things, we deny that there is a God who created all things, and we operate as if we're the God who orders our lives. The Bible calls this sin. This first happened in the garden. I, I turned to Joseph after Adam's confession for us. I was like, Adam, just stole my introduction. Joseph said, I think it's good enough to do again. I was like, oh, that's true. That's true, right? In the garden, we see this thing happen for the first time. Right? Adam and Eve, who are living in the presence of God in the garden, they turn to sin. They suppress the truth of God's goodness and God's love and God's commands, and they decide to make for themselves God, deciding what is good and what is evil themselves. So they suppress the truth, they elevate themselves, and they enter into sin, and the world begins to spin in chaos of that sin. And the problem is that the scriptures tell us the wages of these sins, the wages of suppressing the truth of who God is and the wages of us elevating ourselves as our own gods, the wages of that is death. Eternal separation from God's goodness and God's grace. That's the problem. And he could have left us there. Right? The, the story could have ended there with mankind left to their own demise and their own destruction. But there was a promise. The promise is God came walking in the garden looking for that man and that woman, for Adam and for Eve. He came walking in the garden looking for their hearts of where they were at, and when he found them, he said, what have you done? They made up all kinds of excuses for what they had done, blaming each other and blaming the serpent who had tricked them and, and all these excuses, and he cut through all the excuses and he simply gave them a promise. And his promise was that he would send one who would redeem them. Not just them, but all mankind. He would send one who would crush the head of evil, of wickedness, of sin. He would send one who would redeem the sinner. And so all throughout history, the, that promise has been foretold. We see in Isaiah chapter 53 that that promise is actually foretold to us when it says um, that he would be the suffering servant who would die on behalf of helpless sinners. 
right? So this redeemer would come to wage war on sin, but he would wage war by actually laying down his own life for the sinner. And so the promise comes to answer the problem. And then we have the provision. One night in Bethlehem in a manger, an animal feeding trough, there's this son of God that is sent. Christ, the eternal king. The Christ, the one that John says is the eternal God who actually spoke the world into creation. This same God, the son of God, Jesus Christ, is sent and born as a human. He's born as a human. The eternal God sending the eternal son to be born as a human child so that he may suffer and die in the place of sinners like you and me. So Jesus grew in perfect um, and, and, and perfection, never sinning, never rebelling against the Father. Not once did Jesus in his human life actually suppress the truth that there is a God and love himself over God. He lived the perfect life that we were meant to live. And then he goes to a Roman cross to die the death that we deserve because of our sin. He goes to the cross and he's bloodied and he's beaten and he's bruised. And there on the cross, as these things are going on, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hanging in his nakedness and shame, he actually prays that our shame would be removed. And then he dies. He's buried in a tomb. A stone's rolled in front of the door. It's the beginning of Sabbath. And so at Sabbath, they can't come treat the body. They can't care for it. The disciples, his followers, his family are actually forced by customary and religious law to go into a room and to rest the first day of his death. They have to sit there in their suffering and their grief. They can't even go care for his body. This is what we celebrate yesterday on Holy Saturday. His friends, his family, his disciples, they're crying, they're weeping, they're mourning, they're grieving, they're, they're confused, they're asking why, and they have no answers. But Sunday comes. On Sunday, the Sabbath is over, and the ladies begin to go to the tomb, and that's where our story is picked up. So I want us to look at Luke chapter 24. We're going to see three scenes in this story in Luke chapter 24. We're going to see the, the, the tomb the road, and the room. Jesus is going to meet them at the tomb, the road, and the room. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood with them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, these men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day would rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, and he ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So the women come to the tomb to treat the body, they're 
they're amazed, like, how are we, uh, how are we going to get that big, that big stone out of the way and even get to the body? And when they get there, the stone is rolled away, and they look in, and Jesus is not there, but his clothes are still folded there. And they're, they're amazed, they're, they're confused, like, what is happening? And when they come out of the tomb, there's two angels standing there. Right this morning on our drive here, I was telling Asa this story. We're driving in the Jeep, we're coming here, and I'm like telling him the story about what's going on as I'm telling him about what's going on. Uh, I, I give her this part, I was like, they look in, they go in, he's not there, and they come out, and there's two angels standing there. He goes, <gasps> like, like surprised, like what would shock would this be? And it would be the same for them. And then I say, and they told him, hey, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. And my son goes, tell me that again. Right, and I'm like, oh Lord, let that be our heart's cry today. Right, that this story that many of us know, right, many of us know this, would not just be, I, I know that story, but whoa, tell me that again. Like, I want to hear that news again. He is risen. He's, he's the living. He's not among the dead. He is risen. The women are amazed at this. They, they don't know what to do, and the angels tell them, they go, hey, don't you remember what he told you? Every parent knows this situation, right? Do you, I, I told you that. I don't remember that. I, but I did. No, you didn't, right? It's one of those. They're like, they're like confused about what's happening. And the angel's like, he told you this was going to happen. He told you that he would suffer, that he would be buried, that he would die, that he would rise again in three days. Do you remember? And it begins to make sense for them. The resurrection begins to make sense of all of Jesus' teachings. So they run back to the room where the other disciples are to tell them. And they go in and they tell them, we went to the tomb. Jesus is not there. He's, he's risen. Angels showed up and told us this. And the disciples in the room can't believe it. I mean, there's various reasons here. One, just this news that a dead person is no longer dead is just strange news to believe. Right? And so there's just this automatic, what? But then there's also the historical and cultural fact that, that these are women who are testifying of this. Right, the, the, this matters for us because in their context, the testimony of women could not even be allowed to be shared in court as true testimony. Right, they, they, they weren't living in our culture of equality. Right, their testimony was considered to be invalid. And so there's even this cultural piece of, I can't believe what they say unless I see it myself. So this text tells us Peter runs to the tomb. I love in John's gospel, John tells us Peter and the one that Christ loved ran to the tomb, which is John himself. He always refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. And he makes the point in his gospel that he outran Peter on the way, right? Which I just love. He's just like, hey, we both ran. I beat him. You know, I made it there. They get there and they look in and he's not there. They find this to be true. The road. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death 
and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Let's pause for a moment. So the same day he's risen from the dead, and the women have seen the tomb empty, and they've gone back and told everyone. A few of his followers are like, we got to go home. Like, I, I don't know. I need to go see my family. I need to process this. I need to grieve. I'm confused. I don't know what's happening. And they begin the seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to a town named Emmaus. This is where our church got our name from, the Emmaus. And as they're on their way to their town, they're walking on the road, and they're discussing everything that had happened. They're, they're discussing Jesus's arrest, and they're discussing his, his torture, and they're discussing his death, and they're discussing his burial. And now they're discussing this really um, troubling news that his body's not in the tomb. And they're talking about what all this means, and they're confused. And a man be, appears to them who's Jesus, but they don't know it's him. They're kept from recognizing him. And so as they're walking together, he just goes, hey, what are you guys talking about? Remember last week, Emmaus, the, the question Stephen asked, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He asked a question, opened up the conversation, shared about Jesus. Here, Jesus goes, hey, what are you guys talking about? And from the conversation, he's going to lead into sharing about himself from all of Scripture. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? And they go, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? Like there's this man named Jesus who was a prophet of God and he was mighty indeed. He did miracles and he taught amazing things and we were followers of his and we were really hoping he would be the one who would redeem Israel. The promise, the promise that was made in the garden, the promise that Isaiah told us about, the promise we've been holding on to for centuries, we really, really hoped he was the promised one to redeem all of us and now he's dead. And to make it worse, it's our religious leaders who actually killed him. We've trusted these people. We've followed these people. And now they've killed the one that we thought was the Messiah. Turns out maybe he wasn't even what we thought he was. Man, we're confused. And so what does Jesus do? Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus goes, foolish ones. And, and his term foolish isn't like you unintellectual ones. It's you're not receiving what you know. You won't receive, you won't believe in what has clearly been presented to you. It's an issue of their belief, not their intelligence. Oh, you foolish ones, don't you understand? This is what was foretold would happen. Let me take you back to Moses. And much like Emmaus, like, like Stephen did in his sermon when he was on trial in the book of Acts, much like that, Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning. And starting with the books of Moses and going through all of the prophets, he explains to them the promise of the coming Redeemer. And he's explaining to them that it's him without saying, it's me. He's saying, it is this Jesus. He is the one to redeem. He had to suffer. He had to die. As Isaiah said, he is the suffering servant. This all doesn't, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't erase that he's the redeemer. It actually verifies that he's the redeemer. And in fact, it's the means of his redemption. They ask him this question, are you the only one who doesn't know what's gone on all these days? 
And ironically, he's the only one who does fully know what has gone on all these days. He knows the eternal plan of God from the foundation of the earth to set these things in motion for their salvation and for our salvation. So as they're walking, they come to verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him to strongly to stay, urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Right? Some of you are going to do this this afternoon. You don't have lunch plans, and you're going to be standing around talking to someone after church, and you're going to linger long enough to get an invite to lunch. Right? That's, that's your game. You're like, let's just find out who's going somewhere, and we will work our way into an invitation, and we've got lunch plans. Some of you are going to do that, and we're all going to be wise to it now because Jesus did it. But hey, follow in his footsteps. It's a great move. So Jesus pretends like he's going on. I've got other things to do. And they're like, no, please, come eat with us. I've got other, okay, I'll come eat with you. So Jesus comes into the house and he sits down at the table to eat bread and eat dinner with them. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them, and then the breaking of the bread. So Jesus sits at the table, he takes the food, he breaks the bread, and when he hands it to them, their eyes are supernaturally open to recognize who he was. And all of a sudden, everything he has been saying makes sense. And they say to each other, did our hearts not burn within us when he was telling us of the scriptures? But friends, that's our deepest prayer for you today, that wherever you're at on your journey with the Lord, that as you hear the scriptures taught, something in you would burn with the reality of that's true. Maybe you're all in on the truth of Christ's resurrection. Maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you're like, not at all. I'm only here because my parents made me come. I'm only here because my friends invited me to lunch afterwards. I'm only here because it's culturally um, my obligation to go to church on Easter. Wherever you're at on that journey, Our prayer is that your hearts would burn with the truth of Scripture and that at some moment, at some point in your life, your eyes would be open to see the resurrected Jesus and you would believe. The moment their eyes are opened and they see him, they know who he is, he disappears. But this is like one of the strangest exits from a dinner party ever. I wish I had that trick, right? As an introvert, there's just those moments you're like, I could kind of, I'd love to go away right now, right? Jesus disappears, And they don't clean up the dishes. They don't put away the food. They don't finish their meal immediately. They get up, they leave everything there, and they head back to Jerusalem, seven miles, to get back to the room where the disciples were to go in and be like, it's true. What the women said is true. The tomb was empty because he's alive. We saw him on the road. And when they get there, before they can say that, everyone in the room is like, hey, welcome back. Peter saw Jesus. (laughs) It's got to be one of those moments where you're like, yeah, uh, yeah, right, this wave of emotions. You want to break the news, someone else broke the news, but you still get to celebrate the news. 
right? And they celebrate the resurrected Jesus. Now the room, verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. So they're all discussing, hey, Jesus is alive. We saw him. The doors are locked. The room is full. And in the middle of that conversation, somehow, just like Jesus disappeared from dinner, he appears in this room. He just shows up. And his first words are, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? That, is, that it is myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate before them. Jesus appears in the room. And guys, when he shows up in the room, like remember the context of what has happened. Most of these followers have recently abandoned him. They've betrayed him. They've denied him. They've ran away. They didn't go to the cross with him. They fled for their own lives and hid. He could have shown up in the room and been like, what's up? I told you what was happening. You didn't believe me. You abandoned me. You left me in my time of suffering. It's time to pay. He shows up in the room and he goes, peace to you. I don't bring judgment and condemnation. I bring grace and forgiveness. And he shows up in the room and they don't believe he's, I mean, they're like doubting. They're like, he's a ghost. And he's like, touch my hands. Like, can you do this to a ghost? And they touch his hands and they feel his hands and they see the holes. And then to make it even more, while they're still in disbelief for their joy, they're like happy, they're celebrating, they're weeping, they're crying. It's kind of like, are these sad tears? Are these happy tears? I'm confused about what I'm even feeling inside. In the midst of that, he goes, hey, do you have any fish? Right? And I'm like, Asa goes, he must have been hungry. Right? I was like, probably he'd been dead for three days, you know? Like, he might be, might be hungry. His dinner got cut short when he had vanished from the table. He's probably hungry. But he's also proving to them he's alive. Ghosts don't digest food. I'm here, I'm resurrected, this is me. And they eat. Verse 44, and he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. Right, so like the angel said, you remember what he said? Jesus goes, let me remind you what I said. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So Jesus eats the fish, he wipes his mouth, and he says, now let me remind you of what I have told you. In my three years of walking with you, I told you time and time again, everything written about me must be fulfilled. Not one dot or cross can be ignored. And the scripture said that the, that the, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer who was promised must suffer would die, would be dead for three days, and then would rise. Is it making sense to you guys? 
Do you, are you, hello? Like, I am the Messiah. I am the Redeemer. I am the Savior you've been waiting for. Do you see? Do you believe? Do you know? Now, you must go and proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations, which is what we're seeing in our journey through the book of Acts now. Guys, here's the thing. All of us have to do something with this story. We have to do something with the story. We either have to just go like, I don't believe that. I think that's a bunch of crap. I think that's ridiculous. That's a fairy tale. It's made to make people feel good. It sounds nice. It's something that kind of gives comfort. But that's not true. And if so, then, then we don't do anything with it. We just ignore it, act like it doesn't affect anything. But if there's something in us, if our hearts are burning with the truth right now, if there's something in us that goes, yes, that's truth, we have to do something with that. We have to repent, receive forgiveness through belief in Jesus. That's what we have to do. If the resurrection's true, it changes everything for us. It changes everything for us because now it's not just a religion, but there's actually a hope that is coming with us. Like there's a guarantee of the promises that God has made us. Right? Like we're not waiting right now for God's promises to us in hopes that they'll be fulfilled. We're waiting knowing they will be fulfilled because He's already fulfilled this promise. If God the Father promised that his son would die and be raised again, and God the Son promised that he would die and be raised again, and then that happened, we can be assured that the other promises he's made us are true for us. Let me give you three of them. Three promises this week that I've just been sitting on and relishing in that that I think would be encouraging for us and maybe hopeful for us. The first one is this, that God loves you and has come to give you eternal life. What a promise. It says in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Listen to me. You are the world. He loves you. And he sent his son so that anyone who believes in him won't perish, but receive God's eternal love. Everlasting life. Anyone who believes that, right? It doesn't matter where you come from, what your story is, what sin you dove into. The reality is most of us sinned on our way to church today by getting our families out the door, right? There's sin in our hearts in that moment. Like we're not void of sin. We're guilty before the Lord. And God yet says in the midst of your sin, while you were yet dead in your sin, Christ died for us. And anyone who looks to Jesus in faith receives eternal life and God's eternal love. It's a promise that we have. He also makes us this promise, that Jesus will accept you if you come to him. He will accept you if you come to him. It says in John 6, 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Not initially and not 10 years from now. I will never drive away those who come to me. So if you come to Jesus in faith, he's promised to receive you and to keep you. You're his. So tomorrow, if sin gets the best of you and you completely blow your life, you fall into the pits of despair and sin, 
If you have come to him in faith, he keeps you. He keeps you. The other piece of this, though, is that if you don't come to Jesus, there's no keeping you. In fact, there's no receiving you. It even tells us, um, Jesus told us in John, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So, like, if you don't come to Jesus in faith, in this life, there's no salvation. There's no being kept. There's no eternal hope of him accepting you and welcoming you. You have to come in this life in faith. Third promise. He will make all things new. And we sang about this. We already heard this in our assurance of pardon in our confession today. He will make all things new. Listen to Revelation chapter 21. Behold, the dwelling of God is with me. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the fountain of water of life without payment. He who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers and fornicators, sorcerers and idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There have never been more hopeful words and condemning words in the same passage. Let's begin with the hope. He tells us here that he is making all things new. He says, I will be with you. I will live among you. My presence will be with you. This is his promise, that he will wipe away every tear from every eye. The tears that you cry, that you shed on behalf of yourself, on behalf of others, the tears that you shed because of your own pain, the tears that you shed because of pain of others, every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no more death, no more decay, no more grief or loss of loved ones. There'll be no more mourning, no more crying. There'll be no more pain. He will make all things new. Do you hear this promise? He's saying, I am going to erase all suffering. I'm going to erase the effects of suffering, and I'm going to erase the future of suffering. There will be no more tears. I'll wipe them away. I'll take care of them. I'll comfort you, and I'll bring peace and quiet to your soul. And then I promise you that will be the rest of your eternity. Guys, this is, this is really good news. Like, like I can't say this and and not believe that you think you need some of that. Right? That, that this is good news for you. If we would just be honest enough with ourselves, like we all need that hope. I'm, I'm 41 years old now. I've lived long enough to actually suffer myself. When I was 28, I didn't understand a verse like this in full. 
But the longer I live, the more I sit with my suffering and with other suffering, the more this hope gives me so much, or this verse gives me so much hope. Right, because I, I've sat with, dearly, um, with, with people who lost dear loved ones. In fact, I've lost dearly loved ones to car wrecks and to sickness and more times than I want to suicide. Like I've sat with moms in the grass at 3 a.m. as they received news that their daughters had died in a car accident. I've sat with parents of newborn babies who had passed. I've sat with the elderly in the hospital room as they were taking their last breaths and I comforted the family that were around them. I've sat with the sexually abused and the physically abused and the emotionally abused and wept with them, lamenting and crying out, how long, God, will you let this evil take place? I've sat with the mourning and the weeping and the dying, and I've sat with those who had to sit not in the effects of other sin towards them or evil or death towards them, but in the effects of their own sin and how it devastated their life. Their own sin crushed them. Their own sin stripped everything from them. Their own sin left them to rot and decay. And they just sat mourning, shaking, weeping. I've sat with this long enough, and I have been the one sitting in this long enough to go, I need this promise. I need the promise of resurrection. I need the promise that he is making all things new. And the one who's making all things new is the one who made all things to begin with, the resurrected Jesus. You see, this resurrection isn't just a great story, and it's not only, okay, cool, Jesus is still alive, but it is the very foundation of hope that we have that all things will be made new for us that we will be accepted by him and never driven off from him and that we will have everlasting life in the love of God because of Jesus' death and his resurrection. This is the hope that we have. But in that passage, it's also not the end of the story because that hope is for all who believe in faith upon Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, that he is the son of God who lived perfectly, who died in the place of sinners for their forgiveness, who rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, and who will one day judge the living and the dead. That hope is for them. And if you happen to not be them, if you happen to not be one who's placed faith in that hope, in that Christ, then the good news is today could be that day. You could receive this hope today simply by looking to Jesus in faith and saying, save me, I need you. And so friends, my plea to you today is, what are you going to do with this resurrected Jesus? To those of you who believe in him, (laughs) cling to it this week. As you go into this week, into your own sin, cling to his resurrection because he has freed you from your sin and he has promised not to push you away. So come to him again in a grace, anew, day after day after day. And when you go into this world of suffering and hurt and pain this week, go into it knowing he has promised, the resurrected Jesus has promised to make all things new. That day is coming. May it give us endurance to keep pushing towards that day. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, then I plead with you to come to be a follower of Jesus today. What greater day to place your faith in Jesus than Resurrection Sunday. Do it today. 
you want to talk about that with me, again, I'll be down front after the service. I'd love to talk with you about that. Just come down. We'll step aside. We'd love to do that. Every week we take communion here. Every week we come to this table and we take bread that is broken, representing the broken body of Christ on the cross. Beaten, bruised, stained, torn apart, ripped, crown of thorns upon his head, and we take the juice representing the shed blood of Christ. Every week we come and we take this in remembrance and in profession of faith and in celebration. What better day on Resurrection Sunday than to come take this today? So we will. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come do that, to come take that with us. And if you're not, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then our invitation to you today is to not come take that, but instead to stay in your seat and today go, I take Jesus. Take Jesus today. May he be your meal. And as you go, I come to you in faith, may your eyes be open and your heart burn with the reality of who he is. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll start at the front of the room. We stand. We exit to our right. We come down. We'll receive hand sanitizer. Come across. Get our bread and our juice. And then you'll take it back to your seats. You can take it at your seats together as a family or as an individual. And then we will conclude with one song and we'll be dismissed today. I love you, church. Let me pray for you.